Sustain 267. Welcome to the Sustain 267 podcast, where we host conversations on different issues affecting climate change in Botswana and the rest of Africa. I am your host, Bato Gilisiti. Today's conversation was inspired by an article I came across a few weeks ago titled The Need for an African Union Special Envoy for Climate Change and Security. The essay was written by Dr. Crum and a brilliant African mind, Vain Aminga, a research assistant in the Climate and Risk Program at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Her research work focuses on the linkages between renewable energy development projects and conflict in East Africa. Previously, she worked at the Strathmore Energy Research Center in Nairobi, where her research focused towards eradicating energy-related vulnerabilities for off-grid populations, policy and regulatory reforms, climate change, and increased energy access. Vane has worked in disenfranchised communities of East Africa through a foundation that she founded in 2011, the Fly Sister Fly Foundation. She holds a BSc in Mechanical Engineering and an MSc in Sustainable Energy System from the University of Edinburgh. I reached out to Vane and invited her to join me for a conversation, and this is how it went. Vane, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. So I reached out to you after reading your piece on the need for an African Union special envoy for climate change and security. Would you mind yeah. highlighting the points on that? I mean, I could read it and re-say it, but I think it would be based from from you. So why they would need, why it would be necessary to have an African Union special envoy for climate change and security? Okay, uh, thank you so much for reaching out and for creating time for us to speak today. The work that I'm focusing on is to look at how institutions are uh, responding to climate change and security. So we have this uh, we have uh, uh, this term called climate-related security risks, and what this refers to is usually um, the wide and diverse array of uh, security uh, risks or impacts that are emerging from climate change and how these are impacting different reference objects and this can either be um, human uh, security or state security. And um, so while working on our um, uh, recent pieces on uh, what the African Union is doing in this space, we realized that uh, uh, something was coming up in most of the AU communication that uh, there was a push to have someone a champion to uh to be highlighting these issues at the AU level and um at the international stage and um with the work that we've done initially uh here at CIPRI on um, uh, institutional responses uh we felt that this was really um in line with the with most of the work with, that we had done so seeing that there's a need for someone that is uh, really championing for these uh, issues um, within the union. And um, we decided to, we wrote that piece uh, uh, just before the um, 32nd AU summit last year. And uh, we were hoping that it was going to be one of the uh, decisions that were going to be passed uh, at the AU summit. And uh, uh, so as we speak today, uh, we know that uh, this issue has been discussed on uh, very seriously at the EU level, but uh, we have not, we are not privy to any information that is an EU special envoy or EU leader on climate change and security. And so this is a message that we keep pushing, um, even in our most recent uh, uh, outputs on uh, the African Union's work. Uh, we also still highlighted that we need someone to uh, um, to really uh, spearhead this kind of or give direction on these issues uh, within the continent. Oh, okay. So I was saying, seeing as like yeah. like it's been said before, with climate change, it's it kind of it amplifies different problems. So security, like you touched on earlier, poverty, and all of those different issues. So instead of having one special yeah. envoy, can't it then be something that's incorporated mm-hmm. into the current existing in every existing body. Yeah, uh, so when you look at the AU structure, we have different uh, champions or leaders who are um, sort of like providing strategic leadership uh, on um, some of the key areas that are um, affecting development on the continent. And um, the climate security uh, discussion, rather the reason why we felt like we need 
a specific special envoy for this um, climate security is because it is a nascent field where uh, which is which also is very important. You know, when you look at how uh, uh, climate change is um, uh, impacting human security, for instance, that is really um, touching on many different aspects of development, be it food security, be it water security, be it uh, energy security. And so having someone that is just an, uh, uh, providing some sort of strategic leadership or someone that is um, playing an outreach role on uh, these issues or um, someone that really owns uh, or rather someone that is really spearheading this discussion at the AU level. We feel that uh, um, an envoy uh, on this level is uh, someone that can be like really crucial because we realize that uh, at the AU level, most of the uh, the security space is really given a lot of attention. So when you look at the Peace and Security Council, the AU Peace and Security Council, it is one of the most active um, organs of the African Union. It's also one of the most funded. So if you also bringing in this climate discussion and also showing that uh, climate change or rather the change in climate has a role to play in the security landscape landscape and bringing this together um there's gonna be a room for coordination you know and uh uh, so you mentioned that maybe we need uh, an envoy for every different um, or the different development mandates within the union. Uh, but I feel like uh, it may not be all of them because as ha uh, having a climate security leader in the union is already someone that is going to be um, someone that is going to uh, look at the climate change and security um, work from uh, or, uh, at the level of, you know, also like streaming down to the level of the regional economic community communities and what is happening in the food security space, uh, what is happening in the water security space, what is happening at, uh, you know, like issues around um, armament and disarmament or, uh, you know, we have this violent extremism and we have seen linkages of how uh, we have seen, uh, you know, how climate change is exacerbating this kind of, uh, these kinds of issues. So uh, we still, uh, we still really, um, and I also need to highlight that uh, within the union and um, presently uh, the discourse on how climate change is influencing security is really vibrant it's actually among the most vibrant in the regional organizations that we've studied so far at CIPRI and uh, would like this momentum to be tapped into and have someone that is going to provide some sort of strategic direction you know uh, to ensure that it's not just momentum that is going to be lost uh, in many other issues. Because we see now we have this, we have COVID-19, which is really slowed down a lot of the development um, uh, targets that, or rather the development programming or many other, it, you know, it's like it's really halted or rather brought many things to a standstill. And um, if we had someone, if you already had someone at the union level who is, uh, who is in charge of these issues, then we would not be worried that, okay, uh, the African Union's really vibrant and encouraging discourse is going to be lost somehow. Uh, as the continent keeps to battle with, you know, COVID-19, uh, yeah, with limited capacity. So um, get someone so that let's not only start things, but let's also have a strong middle and a strong end, not just a strong start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree with so that. something that we keep mentioning, um, I think between you and I, we've mentioned five times, but have um, defined what it means. Yeah related security most of the people who listen to the podcast mm -hmm. they they don't study climate change they're not an activist they're not enthusiast so mm -hmm. something like climate related security what is it yeah so um obviously different research um angles come with different have different definitions to this but I guess for our work, we have uh, we look at climate-related security risks as um, uh, we believe that it encompasses a wide array of um, 
uh, a wide array of impacts, climate impacts or risks that are uh, emerging from climate change. So uh, we have um, uh, in the AU paper that uh, we recently released, uh, which I, I can send the link to you later, we looked at uh, how climate change is affecting food security. And sometimes some of these issues are quite, you know, when you, you, you listen to how they're described, you realize like, oh yeah, that is something that I know about, but uh, uh, you had not really conceptualized it in your head. So uh, seeing how, for instance, uh, an example of uh, a food security uh, issue or when you're talking about climate-related security risks could be how, um, you know, uh, we ha we've seen transhumans conflicts between uh, pastoralists and farmers. In northern Nigeria, we've seen uh, issues around um, resource scarcity or uh, food scarcity, also uh, water scarcity issues. So communities are fighting, or other communities are having uh, tensions over water issues. And so these are, and this is stemming from climate change. You know, like there's less water because of climate change, and then there's tensions in communities. Uh, we've also seen um, maladaptation uh, when you're looking at our climate, uh, our energy, uh, energy security work, uh, energy resource energy resource management work, seeing how energy development, even renewable energy development, is uh, maybe exacerbating local tensions in communities, especially if, um, if the local um, the process of involving the local communities does not happen properly or it's not conducted properly. So uh, these are some of the, as I say, it's a wide array of risks that emerge from uh, a wide array of security uh, or tensions that emerge from the, you know, from climate change. So that's how I would explain it and it's in different fields it's uh, it's in different thematic areas uh, as I've mentioned uh, food security uh, we've also seen it in the uh, peace and security space uh, so maybe looking at examples of uh, um, areas that are already um, that are already facing conflict so Ali Somalia for instance where um, floods due to climate change or droughts or farming due to climate change uh, floods have displaced people who are already, you know, like in a very insecure, uh, violent environment, and these people have to move. So there's forced displacement. And to the areas where they're moving to, there's going to be tension over resources, scarce resources, uh, and uh, such issues. So I don't know if that's going to be, <laughs> I don't know if that's still uh, really. Uh, I don't know if I've been able to provide this uh, definition on a granular level, but someone can understand uh, someone that is not working in this space. Yeah, I think um, you've broken it down quite well, except then you use the word maladaptation. What does maladaptation mean? Oh my God. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, maladaptation usually uh, is, uh, so we have climate adaptation, you know, like uh, how some of the, the wide uh, um, range of um, activities or uh, mechanisms that we put in place to uh, to to be ready, you know, to plan for the future uh, climate impacts. So that is adaptation, and maladaptation normally is when adaptation is leads to unintended outcomes, you know. So, uh, for instance, uh, we've seen maladaptation in the case of energy security, the case that I mentioned, whereby uh, potentially, uh, so renewable energy is um, is being promoted as uh, as one of the uh, one of the ways that we are going to uh, reach our climate targets. But if the renewable energy um, planning and development is not conducted well, it's it's we have seen cases where it's leading to some un unintended um, it's leading to un unintended outcomes or other unintended consequences in local communities uh, so for instance I'm going to just choose one case uh, that maybe you've heard about we have the Lake Trukana wind farm in Kenya so that is the largest wind farm in Africa at 310 megawatts and this um, this wind farm has uh, is really it's a it's 
a huge development uh, advancement in the continent and in Kenya because obviously it's uh, increased the grid capacity for Kenya and power capacity, energy. Everybody is happy with it. Uh, many people are happy with it with the project. Uh, it's created jobs. It's uh, you know more power for industry. So really divide, uh, pushing the development agenda on the continent. But on the when you flip the coin, you realize that actually uh, it's not all roses because this uh, amazing project that is going to um, I, I can't remember the exact number of uh, CO2 emissions that it's going <laughs> it's going to save us but uh, this uh, project is also having some unintended outcomes in local communities for instance the land acquisition process so uh, there are lots of cases in court presently from the local people who are uh, opposing uh, the land acquisition process. So they say that this communal land was not acquired properly. And um, so there are grievances around the land issues. And at the same time, uh, the way the Kenyan uh, electricity system is, uh, you know, the way, it's, it's the way it operates, uh, usually you develop power, you produce power and you sell it to the off-taker and the off-taker distributes the power. So unfortunately, the grid, uh, or rather the distribution lines do not reach this area, you know, this area where the wind farm is. So there is there are wind turbines in your backyard. And most of this, this area is among the most marginalized in Kenya. It's um, the people there, they live under, I have to say, maybe under 0 0.5 dollar uh, cents a day. Very poor people. But they are not connected to the energy system. So they have wind turbines in their backyards. They are very, very poor people. Uh, but still uh it's been it's it's been a year since they started producing power and they are still in the dark at night and they're still uh cooking using uh, dirty fuels and they're still uh, they've been left um you know their energy uh development has not advanced in any way so that is maladaptation you know when climate uh solutions are still leaving other people behind and that is why we are pushing for uh, climate uh, climate solutions that are inclusive and that do not leave other people behind, especially the most marginalized. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry, um, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> you know, please, please, I I, I like stories because they contextualize. But even as you're saying that, um, I remembered a, a few days ago I read something on carbon sinks. Uh, yeah. And they were talking about how with carbon sinks, for a quick clarification, so carbon sinks are basically areas where they forest, ocean, or other natural environments that are looked at in terms of the ability to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for the purposes of this conversation. But I was reading something um, that spoke of how with the demand for carbon sinks now, yeah. People are being moved out of their homes, like indigenous people are being moved out of their homes because yeah. people want to build um, carbon sinks, which I find so ridiculous. But yeah, I, I think I saw, I never, ever thought of it that way. I think I saw it yeah. a few days ago and I was quite upset by it. Yeah, yeah. So that's why we have, um, um, we have the, this, uh, I mean, local consultation, rather civic education is really important, you know. Uh, maybe these indigenous communities, uh, they may be, some may be willing to move uh, if you tell them why you're doing this, but you do not just come and move people overnight. You know, I have seen cases where people have been moved for hydroelectric power uh, development, still a renewable energy, um, supposed to be a renewable energy solution that for climate change, uh, uh, for the climate change discussion, but these uh, people are relocated and sometimes their, their livelihoods are stripped from them and uh, sometimes they, uh, they are forced to change their, their livelihoods. Uh, there have been cases of pastoralists being forced to, to become sedentary farmers. And uh, I, I don't think development is supposed to be uh, supposed to change people's, you know, forcefully, cha forcefully changing people's uh, way of lives. Uh, you know, without consulting them properly. And um, so there, there are many uh, cases around maladaptation, but uh, there is also many, many good projects happening across the world, uh, obviously.
that's a need to be. And some of these projects, even if they can be termed as having issues, they still really having great benefits in local communities. So it's these issues they need to be looked into um, and addressed uh, on a timely manner as well, uh, because we do not want to repeat what has happened in the fossil um, in the fossil era. You know, we don't want to have people fighting. We don't want to see wars over resources. So we just need to um, address these issues on a timely manner. Yeah. So I think then going back to our earlier conversation on the EU and um, the possible special envoy, but now looking at the EU as a whole, what role could the AU AU play in trickling down the like climate change policies and just, yeah, let's leave it at climate change policies for different African countries. Yeah, so um, I remember when you contacted me, you were asking about, first of all, um, if there are policies in place. And I'd say yes, because the analysis I did for my work, um, for the work that we have done on the African Union, uh, there were many, many policies that I had to look through to be able to see if any of those was uh, linking climate change to security. So there are many uh, policies, um, and uh, as you may have heard before, um, in Africa we have really beautiful, uh, many, many policies. Uh, Many countries have very beautiful policies, very well written, very well articulated. And so uh, what I would propose for for the union, and there's work happening. So if you look at our work, you'll see that some of the policies, um, they have made some progress. Uh, so especially on food security, so obviously linking food security and uh, and uh, climate change, uh, there's there's been because at over sixty percent of the continent, uh, people on the continent rely on agriculture for their livelihood. So food security uh, is huge. It's a huge issue that needs to be looked into uh, very seriously for us to be able to um, to address development and even like the livelihoods of people. So the climate change discussion of food security has started very long time ago. I think it started uh, we have the AU's um, the AU's formation in or rather the the transformation of the organization of African unity to the African Union in 2002. And then we have policies from t- 2003 on uh, on agriculture, and these are also referencing climate change in there. And uh, so, uh, the, for instance, the Comprehensive African Agricultural Development Program, so it's called CADEP program, it's a policy document. Um, it's really shown that Africa can have its own tailor-made um, solutions uh, for other policies that can uh, positively transform the continent because this policy has has shaped the uh, food security space uh, tremendously. And uh, yeah, there are areas of improvement definitely, but this is homegrown solutions for, care, for, for, for the continent. And um, so what I would say needs to be done is uh, there's a need for coordinated action because uh, sometimes the AU feels like it's in its own utopia. I remember when I was in Kenya um, and I would hear people talking about the African Union. It didn't feel like it was an organization that was within reach for for me as an African, uh, as a Kenyan. I, I felt like that is just an elite organization for some people. So there's a need for coordinated action to ensure that uh, this the the good work the African Union is doing on climate change, climate change and security, and all the other aspects of uh, or rather the other amazing work that the, that the AU is doing even now and its COVID response. All this work needs to be, um, there's a need to ensure that all stakeholders are involved. People understand what the union is doing. African youth, um, that's, you know, that's the engine of the continent now and tomorrow. African youth need to understand what the union does and also feel it, you know, and be part of it. There's a lot to be done, definitely, because now I've worked in the union and I realize that these are, they are doing a lot of great work. But when I look at myself back in the day before I understood what they're doing, there was a huge gap. I felt like I don't know who they serve and um, I don't know if they, I don't even know about their policies, which is quite different from other regional organizations because 
uh, I'd say like now being in Europe, you, you feel like the, this EU youth, that EU youth, this, and, and people, it's quite accessible. So there's a need for accessibility. Um, the AU has to be very accessible for all stakeholders, young people especially, and other marginalized groups or vulnerable groups. People need to feel like it's accessible. And then they can feel like the policies are working for them. Um, and then something else would definitely be more coordination uh, between, uh, because you see the AU is comprised of these eight regional economic communities. So we have the SADC, we have COMESA, we have ECOWAS and others. But these ones have, and then you always find, from what we found is that they, they're all working on very good projects, you know, but there's limited coordination between the communities themselves and from the AU and the communities. So some are, have some advanced work in climate in the climate space. SADEC has done some really great work, uh, especially now since there are water security issues uh, in the southern parts of Africa. So the SADEC is really uh, advocating or advancing its water security discussion seriously. And um, because uh, there are continuous droughts in, uh, in the north, uh, in the Horn of Africa, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work, climate change work happening in in the Horn of Africa region. IGAD, the, the IGAD uh, as a regional economic community, is doing great work there. Uh, ECOWAS is dealing with violent extremism, uh, you know, in Nigeria. So there's a lot of uh, collaboration is key, and this is one of the things we are even seeing from these COVID times uh, that uh, you know countries have to work together, and so countries as AU member states need to work together. Regions have to work together, and the African Union as the uh, continental interlocutor of these issues has a huge role to play in ensuring that this kind of coordination and working together happens. Yeah. I think then um, picking off of something that you said at the beginning of um, just as you were getting into your response, yeah. the AU has policies, but we don't know about them. But are we seeing them, not are we seeing them happen, maybe as Bato, because I'm not um, a climatologist or, an in, or a scientist, yeah. I don't know what to look for exactly. Yeah. But policies that are in place, are we actually seeing them happen? No, so uh, our work showed that most of the EU has beautiful policies, but the implementation is lagging behind. And that is, um, that is the same case for even country-level policies. We have many, many good policies in different countries. And... Uh, so they, it, this is not unique. Um, many, many, many policies, as I said, uh, we analyzed 16 policies for the climate security work we did. And I think out of that, uh, not, I, I think just uh, we didn't analyze the implementation of just two since they're very recent. And out of all that, uh, uh, none has proper implementation mechanisms. And for some, they're just uh, documents. Uh, there's no implementation mechanisms highlighted. No one, and there's not even a sense of ownership. You know, no department has been tasked with implementing. So having a document with no ownership or rather with no mandate on who is going to, to execute this is sometimes, it makes it not, it's a policy, but it's not a policy, you know, at the same time. So, but uh, there have been, um, you know, best practice policies, uh, I'd say on climate change or on environmental conversation, con con conservation because i think this go together um it's uh the so we have the plastic ban uh, in kenya and when this was passed this policy was passed in 2017 i was in the uk and i remember uh when i, I was traveling to kenya and uh in the plane uh there was an announcement that now we are getting to kenya and if you have a plastic if you have anything that is made of plastic you need to keep it away because you're going to have fines or you're going to be arrested because Kenya is a plastic-free country. And I was like, okay. <laughs> wow, all right. That was really, I was really proud, you know, because there was a lot of plastic in the UK. I am in Sweden now. There's a lot of plastic. They are working on that, but there's still a lot of plastic. And uh, the plastic ban in Kenya is one of the uh, is one of the policies that we can see that actually we don't even need to 
we don't need to, you know, wait for developing countries to, to be able to implement their policies and then we can translate that to local contexts. No, we can also be, you know, we can be the bearers of this, showing that uh, so long as you believe in it. But uh, the, uh, definitely in Kenya still there are, you can feel the impacts of this policy. Many, many, many people still don't use plastic, but definitely I, I feel like the, uh, it fell short on some areas because they didn't really do proper uh, civic education. They didn't, uh, they didn't teach local people why they were doing this. So it was a policy that was just implemented. And uh, for a while, yes, many people did not use plastics, but now plastics, uh, uh, plastic paper or plastic, they are trickling back. A single-use plastic, so I'm talking about single-use plastic. They are trickling back into the Kenyan, into the Kenyan, uh, 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 into Kenya again because uh, many people do not. They feel like they maybe they were doing it for the government, but if they had been told that this that we are doing this for our environment uh, and for them to really own this, then I think uh, this was going to be one of the most successful policies we've seen in Kenya. And, uh, but still, uh, sometimes the uh, environmental team, they do walk around and arrest a few people. So yeah, there's, some, there's, there's something happening. But it was really, it was really beautiful to be able to see that. So that can also be translated into the uh, climate space. Um, need to, to show that uh, we can also have best practice policies that other countries developing, non-developing, non-developed that they can uh, learn from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with with and you know the, the, that plastic policy actually went beyond Kenya because I remember there was the one time I was in Ethiopia with a Kenyan and we had gone to the market and yeah. he was getting his stuff packaged. He kept yeah. going to tell them that no, 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 you can't put it in plastic because I can't get into the country with that. He was going straight to the border from to the airport from there. So I was like. Yeah pretty awesome yeah that was really i i still i was really proud at that moment you know <laughs> you know i'm like yeah this is where we should be heading to you know so i guess um then going back to the au it then becomes the thing of how do we then address the unexecuted policy issues looking at the fact that it is possible to execute um a policy looking at the plastic one yeah. Is that then where the climate change special envoy steps in? And yeah. then how do we then get these policies realized and move them from beautiful English on paper to beautiful policies in our lives that we see? That's a really a really good question. And yes, that's where the envoy comes in. You know, having someone that is that has been tasked with you know this work or uh someone that knows that some that, that someone that is passionate about this so passionate enough to to own this and uh push it forward um and um, at the same time i i believe that uh the coordination that i talked about before was going to make it easier for the eu to be able to implement various policies because uh, working in silos um is, has been a challenge for, for, for a long time. So you'll see that uh, since peace and security issues, uh, they have, uh, they are funded, they are more uh, financially um, supported. That means that the peace and security work is, uh, there's more implementation happening in that space uh, compared to maybe uh, areas such as climate change, which are, um, you know, they can keep, they can, they, they've been pushed to the corner for a while. So bringing this, um, uh, bringing these issues together, coordinating the areas, bridging this uh, silos, bridging the various silos at the EU level, uh, will ensure that uh, or, or some of the uh, organs which have, uh, I would say, like we say that the Peace and Security Council has a normative agenda setting ability. So this will enable these other uh, institutions or the other organs to be able to benefit from that. And meanwhile, the Peace and Security Council does not need to, in, the, in, in its recent work to understand the root causes of conflict, they do not need to start working on that uh, by themselves. But they can learn a lot from these other departments, people working on climate change, people working on agriculture, 
people working uh, in local communities, you know, we, we have looked at uh, the Department of Early Warning and Early Response Mechanisms and seeing how this kind of information can be, you know, it can be fed into the uh, peace and security space. So overall, I feel, uh, I, I, I believe that um, coordination on top of having uh, this strategic leadership within the AU, uh, coordination is, uh, is going to really uh, move things forward in a very, uh, on a very, you know, at the speed at which, uh, a speed that is going to ensure that maybe we, uh, we attain Vision 2030 and Agenda 2063. Uh, but if we will continue to work in silos, then this is going to be a long, we have a long way to go, definitely. Definitely. Um, SDG 17, partnerships, we need to see yeah. that. Yes, there's a need for partnerships and uh, meaningful partnerships. Well, We've had this whole conversation on the assumption that we need a policy. But the reality is the policies that are there aren't being actualized. So doesn't that then beg the question mm-hmm. of, do we even need a policy to begin with? Yeah, I do believe that, uh, obviously, policies, they are sort of like the roadmap that is going to guide whoever, you know. Uh, the reason why we have policies is to ensure that uh, when we are working on us, uh, we are working on a specific objective, even if we are not there, someone else can be able to execute that objective. So yes, uh, we, we do need these policies and it's great that we already have the policies because we are not starting from nowhere. Um, but uh, definitely some of the policies will need to be reviewed. Uh, so for instance, we have the AU climate change policy. Uh, I don't know the exact name. Uh, I can check later. But um, this has been, uh, it's still in its draft form since 2015. And um, there's been uh, some of our pe- the people we've spoken to within the union, they feel like it's one of the starting points if we are to be able to accelerate this, uh, the AU's work around climate change and security, climate change and development. Uh, this, uh, the climate, AU climate change for, um, AU policy for climate change, I will need to self- find the exact one for you. Uh, this policy needs to be, it needs to be, to move from draft form and become an actual policy with actual, um, with actual implementation mechanisms, as I said, and it also has to be, uh, to be tailor-made, uh, or rather it has to, to reflect the re- realities, the present realities of the world we are, in the world that we are living in. So, you know, it's not just... Uh, because I think when it was drafted, the climate change and security discussion was still not um, as vibrant as it is now within the union. And this also has to be reflected, you know, trying to show how climate change is affecting the various... Um, security dimensions within the continent. So, uh, yeah, the policies are there, but they just need to be sometimes a bit of tweaking to reflect the uh, actual realities in the continent. And, uh, or rather, if it's already, if the policy is, um, uh, if the policy is very recent, then it's just ensuring that the implementation mechanisms, they exist, and also ensuring that they are funded, because uh, sometimes the capacity it does not exist as well, you know, financial capacity or even institutional capacity for implementation. Yeah. Mm, okay, definitely. A strong case for policy. So I guess we're not completely giving up on it yet. No, no, no. We need, we need, <laughs> we need policies. Uh, but uh, I am, I'm not uh, very keen on new policies. I'm more keen on uh, can we already implement what we have and see where that is taking us, and then uh, we can start working on new policies, you know. Because, uh, as I said, there are so many policy documents, some which can be, actually, they can be, um, they, they need to be one policy, you know, they need to be one policy. But, uh, uh, yeah, so these siloed approaches, as I said, they need to be, um, they need, we need new energy to bring them together and tap into this potential. And as we uh, close our conversation, if there's one thing that you would like to highlight um, from your time working 
doing research around climate change and climate-related security and policies, what's, what's like the one thing that you would be burning to share? Wow, one. <laughs> well, um, the one thing that's, uh, after working in this space, the one thing that I would be wanting to share something that I would really wish to see is how I really hope for a time when uh, there is more African voices in this discussion. Because uh, this is still a very uh, global north uh, discussion, but the people that are affected most by climate change, for instance, they are in, de- in the developing world. Africa, for instance, is just uh, uh, contributing less than 4% of the global emissions, but it's bearing the highest, you know, it's taking up the highest plant of the climate change. Uh, we, we see Cyclone Idai and Kenneth in Mozambique last year. We've seen uh, people um, dying of hunger. We keep seeing people fighting over natural resources and all these other issues that are stemming from, you know, from the impacts of climate change. So, yes, it is happening. But why is there a huge gap between the people that are talking about climate change uh, and the people that are actually suffering. Why are we Africans quiet about these issues? What African youth, why are we not really angry enough to be able to, uh, you know, to talk, to speak about these issues, to call out our governments for policies to be implemented, uh, to call out our governments to, you know, negotiate properly in international forums, negotiate proper deals for the continent. Why... Uh, in the climate strike movement, why is it still very centered in the global north? Uh, why are African youth not? Why? You know, there's a lot of whys. Uh, and uh, so my hope is that the more, you know, the more the, the world keeps changing and maybe in the near future, this uh, discussion, the climate discussion is very you know, the people that are suffering most, they need to have their voices um, out or loudest voices about these issues. Otherwise, it's going to be, it's going to take a long time before we can have solutions. It's going to take a long, long time before even the policies that we are trying to say that they need to be implemented. It's going to be a long, long time because the business as usual, um, the business as usual scenario has failed us. And many people are going to, many people may not be live long enough to see, uh, you know, these policies implemented. Some of them have been around for, you know, over 10 years and still nothing, not even a simple, a single implementation. Uh, my parting shot would be, why are we, why are Africans quiet about these issues? Why are we not angry enough? So that would be my, that would what I would ask. Uh, why is there less research by Africans on this issue? Why is there, you know, online uh, and really good job for what you're doing? I think this is, uh, you know, steps towards the right direction. But we need more voices. We need, uh, we really need to, I, I want to hear, I want to feel it. I don't need to read this on the paper that, oh yeah, Africa is suffering. Climate change is affecting Africa this much. But then I don't see it when I'm in the continent. People are content. And so we need to, yeah, we need to, we really need to up our game on that space. Yeah. I really agree with you. We need to Africanize the environmental and climate change conversations and just have more African voices. I don't know if I'm looking in the wrong place. Twitter, I actively look to follow African voices on climate change and environment across the continent they're not very easy to find. Just yesterday, I think on my Instagram status, I asked people to recommend for me um, people who are working within the environmental climate change space. And with people from, let's say, the global north, you don't even need to go looking for you. They will find you if that's your area of interest. So definitely more African voices in the space um, at Sustain 367, we're trying to amplify the ones who are already there or the one who maybe are already there but um, aren't heard. So what stood out for me in our conversation, partnerships, relevant and timely responses, 
that leave no one behind and in closing partnerships <laughs> and again yeah. partnerships um yeah. thank you so much for making time to speak to me vain this week on Africa Bites, we are in Botswana's neighboring country, Namibia. We speak to environmental scientist Kam Agripreneur, who is in the fish business, and fellow Resilient 40 member Eva Shitatala. First thing I wanted to know was how she understands climate change. Uh, so climate change to me, it's actually uh, the change in climate, changing climate patterns. So which actually means that the climate is changing faster than we actually is supposed to be. So and that is visible in several aspects. So we see that now in countries that never used to experience so much rain is experiencing flood. We see that uh, some um, desert countries like Namibia are becoming more drier. We see several natural disasters happening in different parts of the world that never really used to happen. So for me, that is actually the change in climate. And it's actually affecting each one of us. So we are affected in many other ways. Great that you talk, uh, you touch on um, that it affects us, but how has it affected you directly as an individual? Okay, so what happened is that um, in Namibia, if uh, you follow up on climate actions, we also see that uh, Namibia is becoming more deserty. We are struggling with uh, even water. So last year alone, um, we couldn't have enough. No, the year before, we couldn't have enough rain. So uh, many people in Namibia, including uh, my family, we are subsistence farmer. So we actually, during the beginning of the year, we grow um, crops. And this couldn't happen. And then many families uh, that are farmers also like um, doing livestock, they have also lost most of their livestock last year, including my own family. And uh, the other thing that has also affected me, I think I would speak on in terms of business, is actually that you see that uh, due to climate change and in the industry that I am, the blue economy, we are affected, not only because of overfishing, but also um, many fish species that are actually depleting and extincting uh, due to climate change, that the weather is becoming too hot here. And sometimes it's just unset um, uncertain for one to actually plan and see. And the other thing is also that I don't have enough supply for my clients because, um, I mean, relying on uh, basically sea life is one thing. And then with the climate change, it affects the oceanic environment. And this affects also the output of what com comes out, which is uh, one of the products I'm actually relying on, which is fish. What's the one thing you wish people knew about climate change? Um, okay, so that one thing is that we are all affected and we are all on the same boat. We may not be affected in the same way, but uh, climate change is affecting each one of us. And it is actually, when you even look at what is happening today, we could say that uh, clim um, it is due to climate change that we're also experiencing uh, these new out outbreaks or pandemics like COVID-19. And look at, uh, look at all of us where we are. We all can travel now and because of that. And also some people are losing their jobs. And then we see that also the funding that might be aimed at fighting climate change might be directed somewhere else. So if we don't put our efforts together and fight uh, climate change, we might be able to lose the one thing that we all rely on for living, which is this earth. And then... Yeah. In light of everything you just mentioned, if there was one action that you wish everyone in the world could take, what mm -hmm. do you wish that action to be? I think start where you are. And uh, it can be, you know, planting, um, you know, trees. It can be also, you know, um, growing your own vegetables. It can be saving water. It can be reducing, uh, you know, emissions. So anything that each person can do to contribute to that, I think those are some of the actions that I can, I can encourage other people, uh, everyone to do. And people are involved in so many activities. You might be a politician, you might be a farmer. So use things that are environmentally friendly or to contribute to a better environment. And also mobilize, mobilize people. Sorry, I spoke of too many things though.
It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. We believe in abundance. The more, the better. Um, <laughs> and what are you doing as an individual, as Eva, to contribute towards the efforts of addressing climate change, if anything? Okay, so I am actually involved in a few couple of things that I'm doing. Um, one of it is being part of the youthful network that is advocating for climate change, uh, I mean, climate resilience in Africa. So this is actually where we just uh, exchange ideas, learn from other people, also bring our efforts together because we know that, um, you know, when we are together, we have a bigger voice. So that is one of the things that I'm doing. And uh, secondly, I am actually focusing more on blue economy and saving the blue economy. So uh, my business is built on um, sustainable consumption and also preserving the oceanic um, environment and looking at how we can end um, hunger because we see that as you know, food is running out on the one hand and the fish resources is running out, uh, bringing in effort of aquaculture, farming and so forth. And also educating people and raising awareness on how to consume locally in order to reduce uh, carbon emission, which is one of the contributing factors to climate change. You are doing quite a bit. And on my part, as another African who's staying on the continent, I appreciate your efforts towards this. Uh, thank you so much, Pato. A huge thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Actually, so earlier this week, a fellow Motswana podcaster, Effie, who hosts the podcast Some Black Guys Thoughts, please check it out. He sent me a screenshot of the Sustain 267 podcast ranking as number one on the iTunes chart. I'm not sure how the algorithm works, if it's region or only in Botswana, but either way, I was quite chuffed by it. Thank you for making that happen. Please connect with me either on Instagram or Twitter at I am underscore Patoke. Share interesting articles or just cool climate change and environmental related stuff that you find interesting. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please become a patron from as little as $3 or about 30 bula a month. The link to our Patreon is in the show description. Alternatively, or additionally, please drop us a rating on your preferred podcast listening app and recommend us to friends and family. I am the host of Sustain 267 podcast, Patukilisite, and the sound engineer is Malehoma Khoti. Like our Facebook page, Sustain 267, we will also be sharing this episode and continuing the conversation. Please share your thoughts on Vane's closing questions. Why are Africans quiet on climate change? Why are we not angry enough? And why isn't there more academic research on this issue by Africans? As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is still upon us with infection rates in Africa rising and lives being lost daily. Let's continue to follow safety regulations so we and our loved ones stay safe and stay alive. Take care. Sustain 267.